Mr. Hurst, believe me, I have something you want to hear. Peter! I have a story of Pulitzer making a terrible mistake, Mr. Hurst. Let him be. You have 30 seconds. I just returned from Moscow. I took a train south and saw empty village after empty village. Ah, the famine story. I, I saw it with my own eyes, Mr. Hurst. Well, if I commission an article from you, huh, it will be your word against Durante's Pulitzer. That's a scene from the new movie Mr. Jones, about one of the most chilling and forgotten episodes in modern history, the horrific man-made famine in Ukraine in the 1930s, the result of policies ordered by Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin, and the years-long cover-up in the West of what took place, the result of the journalism of a Pulitzer Prize-winning correspondent for the New York Times named Walter Durante. Durante, an apologist for Stalin, dismissed the accounts of mass starvation of Ukrainians, insisting it was all anti-communist propaganda aimed at discrediting the noble Soviet experiment. It's a powerful case study of how the mainstream media can misinform the public, a tale brought to light by the film, which focuses on a lonely British journalist, Gareth Jones, who went to Ukraine during the height of the famine and nobly struggled to inform the world only to have his reporting ignored due to the power of Durante and the New York Times. We'll talk to the woman who wrote the movie, Andrea Chalupa, about why the Ukrainian famine continues to loom so large in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and why its lessons about the media are more relevant than ever today on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydeman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So there are two stories I want to tell that I think explain my interest in this really gripping movie. The first, and they all go back to the summer of 2016, when we were starting to learn and report on the Russian interference in the election, one of my Original sources back then, a woman named Alexandra Chalupa, was a Ukrainian-American who had been a consultant for the DNC, who told me about her interest in Russian interference in Ukraine, goes back to her family history, her grandfather— and her great uncle were victims, lived through the famine of the 1930s and just had these incredible, horrific stories to tell about what the Ukrainian people experienced. And that, although I, of course, was aware of the famine, you know, having a first person account like that from a family member was pretty strong stuff. But then just a few weeks later after... 
Alexandra Chalupa told me that story. I was in Cleveland for the Republican convention having dinner with a bunch of New York Times correspondents and Karl Rove, the famed Republican strategist, who was tweaking the Times folks about his visit to the New York Times some years back and seeing on the wall the photograph of the Pulitzer Prize winning Walter Durante and Rove pressing them, why do you still have that up? Why do you still celebrate the reporting of somebody who was so grievously misinforming the public about the realities of Soviet Russia? Yeah, I remember some years ago being in the, the Times building in uh, Times Square there and seeing that all of the Pulitzers, framed Pulitzers um, on the walls, you just walk down this long corridor and you just see them, you know, Pulitzer after Pulitzer after Pulitzer. I remember when I was a much younger reporter studying the New York Times Pulitzer Prize is going back to like, I don't know, 1910 or something. And people like uh, who most of our listeners will not remember, uh, certainly won't remember, may not have heard <laughs> remember, of. Remember, may never have heard of, yeah. <laughs> Arthur Kroc, who won <laughs> three Pulitzer Prizes and Harris and Salisbury, all, all these names. And, you know, one of them, of course, was Walter Durante. And I knew who he was. I knew he was the Times Moscow bureau chief. I did not aware the extent to which he was an apologist for, you know, one of the great mass murderers in history. And, you know, it does make you wonder, you know, I think most of those Pulitzers were won legitimately. But even a guy like Arthur Kroc was writing speeches for Joe Kennedy, the old man, the patriarch of the Kennedy family, while he was also writing columns for The New York Times and not disclosing it. So it does make you wonder but look, th this is a, uh, a very powerful movie. It's a chapter in 20th century history that I think still does not get enough attention given the millions of people who died um, in these man-made famines. And, you know, the, the role that uh, Durante and, and, you know, uh, by extension, the New York Times played in covering it up is an important story. It is. And I should have uh, pointed out that my source who was telling me about the Ukrainian famine, Alexandra Chalupa, is the sister of our guest, Andrea Chalupa, who wrote this movie, Mr. Jones. And uh, that's sort of uh, 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 sort of makes the point, the symmetry here of how this story still has relevance for millions of people in Ukraine today to Ukrainian Americans. It explains a lot about the hostility between Ukraine and Russia. And of course, it was the Russian intervention in Ukraine in 2014 and the annexation of Crimea that set Russia and Putin on the course and the United States on the course that led to the Russian intervention in the American election. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, it's it's an important story. And also a cautionary tale for journalists and news organizations today, because this is a, uh, in some ways, a very tough time to do journalism, given um, the, uh, the the financial challenges, given the the business model um, is is severely uh, challenged, given, you know, the difficult relationship between the fourth estate and the rest of the government. And uh, there is a, I think, uh, you know, a temptation sometimes to take the path of least resistance, which is to cozy up to 
the people that we're supposed to be covering and to succumb to access journalism. And that is can take you down a very dangerous road. Right, exactly. And of course, the, you know, the, the point here is it's, it's aggravated. Uh, the problems are aggravated so much more when you're talking about covering closed societies. And in order to get into places like then Soviet Russia or today North Korea or Saudi Trump's Arabia Washington. or Trump's Washington, <laughs> um, you need to uh, you know, suck up to uh, powerful people to get the kind of access you're trying to get. And that often may- means compromise your integrity, something that is graphically the case in uh, shown in this movie about Gareth Jones and Walter Durante. So let's bring in our guest, Andrea Chalupa, who has uh, written this film and uh, helped bring it to life. So let's get to it. We are now joined by Andrea Chalupa, the writer of Mr. Jones, the film about the Ukrainian famine and the cover-up that kept the news about it from Western readers. And uh, Andrea is also the co-host of the podcast Gaslit Nation. Andrea, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much for having me. So fascinating movie about a story that I have to say most people probably don't know, but clearly is something that you as a Ukrainian-American know well, and that is the story of the famine and how it was covered up. So tell us how you came to make this movie, why you wanted to make the movie, and how it came together. Yeah, so as a little girl, as a Ukrainian-American growing up in California, I knew the rough plot of the film, which is that Stalin deliberately mass-murdered millions of people, the majority in Ukraine. He seized Ukraine's grain and sold it abroad to raise money to rapidly modernize the Soviet empire. And during all this, Soviet propaganda, with the help of Walter Duranty, the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning Moscow bureau chief for the New York Times covered up this genocide. So I gave an impromptu class presentation about this when I was in sixth grade and burst out into tears. So this was this horrible little known genocide that I grew up well aware of because my grandfather had lived through it with his family. And part of this horrible feeling of just knowing that someone you loved who was the world to you went through this was, was, was also this weird feeling of being an American and most Americans had never heard of this. And back then when I would tell people I was from Ukraine, I, I often heard, oh, you're from Russia. Or, you know, Americans just had a tendency to just think that the two countries are the same, like the US and Canada are the same. And so when I was in college studying Soviet history, I started procrastinating on my Soviet, my big heavy Soviet history thesis work by researching like, why did Walter Duranty, a journalist, do what he did? Like, why would you just so blatantly go against the ethics of your profession? And the more I started digging into Walter Duranty and learning that he was a lover of the Satanist Aleister Crawley, who inspired the Rolling Stones to write Sympathy for the Devil. He did all this opium and was part of uh, Crawley's sex magic orgies in 1920s Paris where he talked his way into a job at the New York Times. That's when I was like, oh my God, you know, as a college kid, this guy would make an exceptional film. And so I had this ridiculous pipe dream of making this movie to honor my grandfather and all who had suffered through it and giving some sort of sense of justice back to the millions 
Andrea, before we get into the the story and and Walter Duranti and Gareth Jones are, I mean, I have not seen many movies where you have two more interesting heroes and, and villains, but just step who are back, journalists who are yeah. journalists, yeah. but just step back, help us step back and understand what the this you know so-called terror famine was, how it grew out of the policy of collectivization and how it was a, a man-made genocide, because a lot of people just don't know the history. Yeah. So the history itself, uh, there's excellent books coming out in recent years that really sum it up in a, in a chilling way, graphic way. And, and those books include, of course, uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning historian Anna Applebaum, her book, Red Famine, Stalin's War in Ukraine, and then Yale uh, historian Timothy Snyder's Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin. Those are the two must-read books. Bloodlands opens with the story of Gareth Jones, the hero of my film. And so the, the actual historical event itself came out of Stalin's first five-year plan, where he was going to get this plan done in four years. And so that saying, two plus two equals five, that was a rallying cry for people across the Soviet Union. And, and Orwell took it from that and used it in, 19, in 1984. And so with this rapid uh, industrialization and collectivization of, of farms, like independent farming systems into state-run farms, that wasn't easy to do, of course. And so it required all these Soviet soldiers and these diehard activists to go into Ukraine and systematically commandeer the country's grain. But because Ukrainians were such a pain to the Kremlin, they had fought for their own independence during the chaos of the Russian Revolution. And it, and achieved it for a short time. This, Stalin saw an opportunity here to, to weaken Ukraine overall and to eradicate as many as Ukrainians as he could. So, what, so it wasn't just, we're going to take your food and, and leave you to starve to death. Um, after they took the grain, they had age, teams of agents going door to door, searching people's homes, looking for food, destroying cooking utensils, digging into their walls, poking holes in their walls and in the ground, and just taking whatever they had that was edible. I interviewed one famine survivor that said that she was boiling twigs and leaves over open fire and soldiers came and took her stew and dumped it out. So they were de deliberately starving people. And on top of that, they were shutting down Ukrainian cultural institutions. They were arresting or, and, and liquidating Ukrainian cultural leaders. Um, so the part that was hardest hit is what is today East Ukraine. And today we know East Ukraine as being primarily ethnically Russian and Russian speaking. But historically, before the famine, it was the hotbed of Ukrainian national identity. And the reason why there's so many Russians there now is because Stalin came in and just wiped as many Ukrainians as he, as he could and over time Time, they repopulated the area with Russians. And just quickly, just quickly, the estimate of how many people were killed. Right. I know so it's a wide range. Yes, the wide range. So by conservative estimates, overall, there were 5 million people who perished in the famine across the Soviet Union. The vast majority, like nearly 4 million, were Ukrainian. There was also a very uh, hard hit area, which is, of course, Kazakhstan, which lost, I believe, around a million people. And the mass murder became so intense that there's even a death certificate from the time where the cause of death is listed as simply Ukrainian. Like it, it just became so uh, normalized for body collectors, mm -hmm. sanitation mm -hmm. wagons to go around and collect bo dead bodies off the street and dump them into mass graves. 
Tell us the story of your grandfather and I believe his brother. There was a uh, yeah. who suffered from uh, and yeah. died from the famine. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking. So my grandfather, shortly before he passed away, he felt compelled to write down his entire life story, which he did using a Ukrainian typewriter. And when I graduated college, I went to Ukraine and I found a translator because my Ukrainian wasn't that great. And I got back the pages while living in Ukraine for several months. And my grandfather wrote about living through the events that Orwell allegorizes an animal farm, from witnessing the Russian Revolution as a small boy being fought on his family farm, to living through Stalin's terror famine as a young man, to being arrested as a young father during Stalin's purges and being tortured. And um, so, so we're very grateful to have this document in my, fam in my family. And in fact, one of the scenes in, in the film, Mr. Jones, comes directly from my grandfather's memoir, where uh, he writes about how he and his brother witness a body collector, a sanitation wagon, driving up and seeing a dead woman on the side of the road who's being pawed by her still living infant. The infant is trying to wake up the mother, nuzzle, it for, nuzzle her for milk. And the body collector just snatches the woman's body, throws it into his cart of bodies, and then throws in the still living infant too. And that's what my grandfather witnessed. And that was, a, that was not an uncommon sight at the time. And so we put that in Mr. Jones as something that Gareth himself witnesses. And when we were filming that horrific scene, it was uh, during a really big snowstorm in Ukraine. And um, we had crew that was just shivering cold. It was just so, in, it was so, it was just a dark time for the production. And so I sent out to, to sort of, sort of, you know, help lift up spirits and remind people what we're fighting for. I sent out the scene that we're shooting the next day of the body collector and also the words of my grandfather's memoir, and they're nearly identical. And so I sent that out to James Norton and the crew that was going out the next day in the freezing cold. So this was one of the most horrific episodes of mass murder of the 20th century predated uh, the Stalinist purges, predated the Nazi Holocaust. And yet it was largely unknown in the West. People in England, France, the United States did not know that there was a horrific famine uh, going on, a man-made famine going on, and millions of people were cherishing. And that's what's the power of this story, because you identify the single individual who was most responsible for the fact that the famine was being covered up, the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the New York Times, Walter Durante. Why did Walter Durante dismiss the accounts of the famine and why was his view so powerful that others <laughs> other journalists followed him well of course this was before twitter where walter durante would probably get destroyed <laughs> um for and so he'd get ratioed for probably writing something like this back then and um so he was you know, obviously information was tightly controlled by the gatekeepers and Durante was a very famous gatekeeper. He had the kind of artistic temperament, this, this sort of larger than life energy that made him sort of attracted to a far-flung outpost as covering Stalin's Moscow. Um, this was a rough assignment and he thrived in that environment where you had all these literati come from abroad and they would hang out with him and, and go to some avant-garde 
guard parties in Moscow or hang out in his beautiful big apartment near the Kremlin and have a great time. And when he would go back to New York City and hang out with the Algonquin Roundtable and all of his celebrity literati friends, uh, he was toasted, cheered as this uh, exotic uh, celebrity that would regale them with stories of what it's like over there. And he loved the attention of, of, of New York City. He loved New York City. And a lot of the research I looked into was that that was really his desire was to be this big fish in a big city that he saw as like the, the center of the world, which was New York. So Durante achieved that by being that big, exciting weirdo back out in Moscow. And through it all, as a journalist, he one of the big interests he had was winning an O. Henry Prize for a short story. And I think it was Peter Sarsgaard who said when he was diving into the mindset of Durante, who, Peter, of course, plays him perfectly, um, where he says, you know, Durante probably got more excitement winning, finally winning the, a prize for a creative writing short story than he did the Pulitzer because he's finally becoming the artist he always dreamed of being. So I think it was just, um, I, I don't think given, given the media landscape at the time and given his fame and influence, I mean, this is somebody that sat down with FDR when FDR was running for president and explained to him about the Soviet Union and, 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 and you know, recommended policies and, and, and walked him through that whole world. And FDR remarked that this was the first time where he was the one asking all the questions. And that influence would later pay off that in 1933, during the height of the famine, Durante accompanied the Soviets to, back to Washington, D.C. and New York, where they officially signed normalizing relationships with the United States. And to mark this, there was a big party in the Waldorf Astoria, which we show in the film. And um, one of the reporters writing in The New Yorker wrote that the greatest applause was reserved for Durante, who was seen as brokering that relationship, the success of the Soviet and U.S. coming together and opening up the Soviet Union for, for American industries. And that, of course, is shown in the film. And it, it looks like it's just it looks like it's all just too simple, too straightforward, but the historical beats of the film are, are largely accurate. To what extent, Andrea, was Durante a sort of ideological sympathizer? Because one of the, when he's challenged about his, you know, being, you know, essentially being an apologist uh, for, for Stalin, the line he keeps using is, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, you know, which is supposed to, I guess, justify a lot of the terrible things that were that were happening. Something that's know. attributed to Mao, by the way. I think he used mm -hmm. the same yeah, phrase. Yeah. So it's he's he's a complicated character in some ways because in some ways it seems like there's uh, ideological sympathy. On the other hand, he seems to also, as you kind of point out, a kind of a, a deal that he's made. He, he can live, you know, the high life in Moscow. He can be this important figure. So which which is it? I don't think ideologically, I mean, maybe he saw himself as a realist. I, I think he really believed you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs and that what was being done, uh, all this mass murder was, it, it's, it's going to pay off. I think he really believed in the ends justify the means. But I, I think first and foremost, he was just interested in living an exciting, fulfilling, indulgent, hedonistic life. And he's an opium addict for some time. He and Aleister Crawley shared a lover. And one thing that you know, we, he that we show in the film is that he had a child. Uh, he had a son, and the mother was his was his maid. So he got her pregnant. And but when Durante was done with Moscow. He left his son 
and the mother behind. And his friends were shocked by it. And one of his friends had to go, you know, go after, hunt, you know, look, search after them and, and give them money, make sure that they're looked after. Durante was done with them. So I think first and foremost, he was a pleasure seeker. And the way he was guaranteed that life of comfort was staying on the side of power. And even in his brilliant biography, Stalin's Apologist, uh, there's a scene where he was at a, a, a school, a very tough school, and he, was, and he chose to be on the side of the school officials and being essentially a hall monitor and getting other students in trouble. And those students would get caned because this was obviously a very long time ago. So I think Durante was geared towards a life of comfort and pleasure, and, and he could achieve that by being on the side of power. But Andrea, that that's Durante, clearly a complicated character, but the reason he was so influential is because that view, dismissing any excesses of the Soviet regime, was very much what the liberal left intelligentsia at the time wanted to hear. Certainly, I have seen certainly. the future, Lincoln Steffen said as he came back from Moscow. The Webb, uh, uh, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, writing their book, A Peon to the Great Glorious Soviet mm-hmm. Constitution of the night of 1936. The view was that this is the progressive force in the world. This is what's going to liberate the world from mm-hmm. the oppression of capitalism. Right. And nobody wanted to hear about atrocities being committed by Joseph Stalin. Absolutely not, especially when you had Hitler coming to power in the exact same moment. And yeah, I mean, the world was, the Western powers were exhausted by the Great War. They did not want another war with anyone. And they were, of course, under crisis from the Great Depression. And uh, so people were looking to the Soviet Union for hope. And there are certainly journalists that went over there excited and inspired by the great socialist experiment. And these included famously Malcolm Muggeridge and Eugene Lyons. And both of these journalists had their hearts broken by the reality on the ground. But Durante, you know, going off into his golden years where he died of a ripe old age in Florida, he went off writing defenses of himself and his position. So he was, I don't think he was someone, I think in his case, he was just riding the biggest and easiest wave that he could at the time and and essentially cashing in on that. But given- um, Let's talk about Mr. Jones. Given uh, how you had to really buck up against uh, the establishment to get to the truth here, tell us about Gareth Jones, the hero of, of your story. Yeah, so Gareth Jones, uh, um, so originally I was thinking of Malcolm Muggeridge as the hero. He's he's very well known, of course, British journalist, and um, his journey covering Ukraine was was well known at the time. It wasn't until years later when I was living in Ukraine and researching this the script that I came across the story of Gareth Jones, which had just been unearthed by his family that found an old suitcase full of his diaries and posters of his of, of his travels. And that's when it was just this lightning bolt moment of here's my David against Goliath. And I wrote to his niece, Cyril Coley, and I met with her in London, had a great time getting to know her and interviewed her. And she was just the sweetest, sweetest person and and just so lovely. And then I got to know Nigel Coley, her son, who was Gareth's great nephew, and they provided tremendous research. And um, I got to know all, all sorts of historians and survivors over the time. But so Gareth Jones who he was, he was, who was he? Okay, so he was this young guy from nowhere Wales, essentially, who 
through his own uh, intelligence and his hard work and determination, goes on to Cambridge and uh, gets uh, these incredible degrees of, of studying German, Russian, French. And through that ingenuity, he becomes um, an advisor to the former World War I Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, a fellow Welshman. And Gareth Jones has this great career in the front seat of history, and he leverages those contacts to then go be one of the very first reporters to cover the new chancellor of Germany, Adolf Hitler. He manages to talk his way aboard Hitler's plane flying across Germany. And he opens up his, his, one of the articles he writes from this trip saying, if this airplane should crash, the whole history of Europe would be changed. And so he covered these, what, these rallies for Hitler, which he described as primal. And he, he saw the force of, of Nazism and, and what it could become. And from all of that excitement from that trip, he doesn't get his contract in London renewed with David Lloyd George. This is, of course, a Great Depression. So he jumps to his next great adventure, which is Stalin. And he goes to Moscow researching r rumors of a famine. Um, at the time, he knew why he was going there. Um, he had been there. Uh, this was his third trip, I believe. And, and so he went in there with wide eyes. And what he ended up doing was name dropping Lloyd George to get a coveted trip inside Ukraine, which was closed off to journalists at the time. And so by name dropping Lloyd George, the Soviets really rolled out the red carpet for, the, for him. And he in, in turn eludes his Soviet escort, jumps off the train in, no, in nowhere Ukraine and goes by foot for several days, living among survivors of the famine and interviewing them. And um, he, then, he, then they, he, he manages to come out. It's not as dramatic as we show in the film. He gets picked up by some plain clothed Soviet police officers who are shocked by this alien walking around. And they, they escort him back. They get him back to Moscow. And when he goes abroad, he immediately holds a press conference telling the world what is going on, that millions are being mass murdered by their own government. And he is the first to call it a man-made famine. And there is a big burst of, of uh, articles about him and his press conference, and the Soviets are furious. Lloyd George is furious, and how dare Gareth do this? And he's essentially cut off from this establishment and has to go back home to Wales, where he, where he spends some time writing stories about local arts and crafts and things in Wales. And then he sort of dusts himself off and takes another big, exciting trip abroad, this time to Inner Mongolia, where he falls in with a couple men that research later shows were connected to the Soviet secret police. And after falling in with them, he gets kidnapped by bandits. The, 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 the men the, that he's with, the Soviet secret police connected men, are let go by the bandits. Gareth is left behind. And he's shot three times in the back the day before his 30th birthday and dies. And, this, wow. and the story of the famine eventually dies with him. <laughs> wow. Amazing story. I want to know something amazing, a side note, Michael, because I know um, you've obviously reported on my sister, Alexandra Chalupa, the, the DNC consultant who tried to warn everyone on Paul Manafort, and she's in your great book, Russian Roulette, which I was reading on set while filming Mr. Jones. So I have to say, the most amazing personal note to this that happened was my sister, Ali's final kid, her, her third daughter, happened to be born on the day Gareth Jones was shot, which was the day before Gareth's birthday. And on the day that I was giving a presentation about Gareth Jones to a group of journalists in Washington, D.C., it's just so weird. So I refer to her as our Gareth Jones baby. So it is, to me, this is a, an important story on so many levels. First, 
certainly historically, just documenting the uh, extent of Stalin's famine and how it in many ways, you know, foreshadowed Russian views of Ukraine and the exploitation of Ukraine that has continued to this day. But it's also such a fascinating media story about why the Western media looked the other way. And, you know, it speaks to the herd mentality of the media, the closed minds, the way we sort of follow the zeitgeist and don't do what Gareth Jones did, and uh, which is on-the-ground reporting that contradicts the prevailing narratives of the time. And... So what are the lessons we should learn from this? Oh, well, it's, it's not just a story of access journalism, because obviously these reporters in Moscow who came together to write articles saying that Gareth Jones is lying, because this happened. This happened. Eugene Lyons of UPI wrote a great memoir called A Simon and Utopia. And one of the chapters was called The Western Press Conceals a Famine. And it's all about how he and other Western journalists were herded into a hotel suite with the Soviet censor. And they all made a deal to write articles that saying Garrett Jones is lying in exchange to protect their access to the Soviet regime. So this film, Mr. Jones, is not just a cautionary tale about access journalism and how dangerous it is to practice access journalism. Uh, because it can blind you to all these urgent human rights crises and, and, and it can normalize atrocities that you just overlooked in your, your coverage in exchange for access, but also just conformity and self-censorship and how precarious uh, financially these jobs are as journalists. Like Gareth Jones loses, he has, Gareth Jones has to move back home. It's like he loses a livelihood. Um, he can't keep going on this, ex this exciting career that he was building for himself. And I think journalists today are even in a harder situation because, as we all know very well, newsroom jobs are disappearing and investigative units are incredibly expensive. And so they're the first to go. And I think there's a lot of shame in our industry to talk about this, even though we all know exceptional editors, exceptional reporters that, we, you know, that we've worked with that are now forced into all new industries. And um, so I think it is dangerous the, this, this time. And plus you have a consolidation of far-right media with Sinclair buying up a lot of local broadcasting groups and you have uh, Fox News now having a lot of stiffer competition with Newsmax and One America. So you have this consolidation of far right media and at the same time, a capitalistic cobbling, a hedge fund destroying, a shrinking of newsroom jobs, namely investigative journalism jobs across the across our country. And, and the price we pay for that is truth. And, you know, I was uh, going to say there, there's. Obviously, you know, we often hear criticism of the mainstream media and the corporate media, maybe certainly not on the scale, I wouldn't think of what a Walter Duranti did. But can you think of examples of where, you know, all of these challenges that the media has and the consolidation that you talk about is having a kind of a measurable effect on journalists today? Missing these important stories, um, not getting at the truth? Is this something, how, how concerned should people be about this? Well, I think, you know, Michael Isakoff, your book, Russian Roulette, I think people should be very concerned. And I, I think you know, if you take uh, Michael Isakoff's Russian Roulette, Michael, you were one of the few journalists 
that actually took my sister seriously in 2016 when she was trying to warn everyone about Trump and Russia. So I know from what she went through, she didn't have much of an audience in mainstream media that, would, that was willing to take her seriously at the time. So you got ahead of that very big story. And, um, and we saw a lot of sort of res resistance really taking it so seriously for a while. Uh, we, we had the infamous October 31st, 2016 article in the New York Times saying the FBI sees no connection be tr between Trump and Russia. And that basically settled the matter for people days before the big election. And anybody that dared to talk about Trump and Russia was seen as crazy and pushing a conspiracy theory or being a Hillary Clinton supporter and was just dismissed or ignored. And then you had William Barr coming in with his press conference and his four-page memo saying that Mueller exonerated Trump. And America's major legacy newspapers ran with this, running headlines saying Mueller exonerates Trump. And Mueller himself had to come and break his silence. That's, that's not what happened. <laughs> and, and, had to, and so I think it, just the Russia story alone is a great example of, of what I'm talking about. And we have, with these shrinking newsrooms, less journalists going abroad to these far-flung places and really getting a handle on things. I think Ken Vogel, Ken Vogel has done some atrocious reporting in Politico, uh, and then uh, the New York Times, where he was trying to push that, essentially trying to push that Biden Burisma story. And anybody that knows Ukraine knows that the prosecutor general that Biden said should get sacked, he was echoing what any, any anti-corruption reformers were, were begging for. Like, this guy was so corrupt, he had to go. And if, you know, so Biden was just going along with a larger chorus of people who cared about fighting corruption and ensuring democracy in Ukraine. And, and Vogel sort of left that important major point of that out. So I think just from, I, I think just from following this issue closely, Mostly for so long, I, it makes me wonder what else is getting left out. What other context are are we are we not being given? And all these other stories that are that are. I should point out uh, about Ali, your sister, what she told me that got me on to the story. In fact, it was the first big story I did about Trump and Russia in, in 2016. Was the fact that she was hacked by the Russians and had gotten a notice from Yahoo, which had, she had a, a Yahoo email account, uh, that she was the victim of a state-sponsored cyber attack. And that was the first sign that the, the, the hack of the DNC was broader and wider. And we've learned so much more about what the Russians uh, were doing and are still doing to this day. Just one last beat about Ukraine and and where events are headed. Of course, it was um, after Putin's uh, seizure of uh, Crimea and intervention in Ukraine that the U.S. imposed sanctions. Of course, uh, then Vice President Biden was very much directly involved in all that. Where do you see this developing in the new Biden administration? Will there be any further attempts to get to roll back the Russian presence in Ukraine? Or is it a fait accompli at this point that we all have to learn to live with? I think Biden, you know, he was the staunchest supporter of Ukraine and the Biden and the um, Obama administration. 
So if you are a single issue voter and that and your issue is Ukraine, you're in great hands with Biden because he's got a really solid team around him that is going to make sure Ukraine has the resources it needs to fight corruption and resist Putin's invasion. And as Biden himself told the Ukrainian parliament, you need to clean up your corruption because the Kremlin is weaponizing it against you. I'm thrilled for him to come in and be a staunch supporter of Ukraine. And it, it's it's great. And I, and I think that... It's going to be interesting the years ahead of um, Putin losing his guy in the White House now and how he tries to act up and threaten us in return to try to sort of um, fend off what the U.S. and the Western alliance can do as a response. But I have full faith in Biden, you know, bringing America in as, as a strong ally again in the Western alliance and the Western alliance rebuilding and providing the programs that Ukraine desperately needs to become to reach the European Union aspirations of its citizens and, and, and you know, countless people gave their lives in, in Ukraine's revolution. And they did that because they wanted to live in a stable, functioning democracy, like the kind um, they saw on TV, uh, the images on the internet of all these kids in all Europe just living a, a really good life and not being stuck under these oligarch kleptocrats. And Andrea, I've got one, one last question coming back to uh, your movie and some of the questions it raises about the media, and that's about the New York Times. Walter Duranti, of course, won a Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of the Soviet Union, and there's been something of a campaign. But not on the famine. No, earlier. But, but, but earlier. I want to say, though, he won his Pulitzer Prize covering Stalin when the famine was already being set in motion. So it's right. it, it, yeah. But so there, there has been something of a campaign to, to get the Times to to relinquish or return that Pulitzer Prize. Uh, they have not done so. Have they acknowledged the shortcomings of Walter Duranti's coverage? What have they said about uh, you know, accepting responsibility for that journalism? So as far as I know, they still count Duranti's Pulitzer, along with their long list of other Pulitzers, which I think is a horrible thing to do. And I think it, it discredits, it, it they shouldn't do it, especially out of um, honor to their, the, the Pulitzers they, they deserve to keep. Um, the New York Times did hire a wonderful historian by the name of Mark Von Hagen, who was at Columbia at the time. He has passed away in recent years. He was a, a wonderful man. And Mark Von Hagen looked into Durante's reporting and the articles that won him the Pulitzer and said, you, the, this is Soviet propaganda. And he, he recommended that Durante's Pulitzer be revoked. Bill Keller, the editor at the time of the Times, said some released some statement that was talking out of both sides of his mouth saying, sure, we could, you know, get, we could say, let's give back Durante's Pulitzer, like, let's have it revoked, whatever. But wouldn't that just, wouldn't that be like erasing people from history, which is just, which is what Stalin himself did? And so after this, the New York Times releases that statement, the Pulitzer Committee declined to revoke Durante's Pulitzer. So I think Bill Keller played a role with his really dumb gaslighting statement, sort of giving a, giving a dog whistle to the, you know, you know, winking at the Pulitzer Committee and the Pulitzer Committee held the line. I think today with the film coming out and a lot of anger towards the New York Times, especially under Trump, people were really tired of all the Trump supporter diner stories. And um, it really, as we saw um, 
Ben, you know, Bennett getting finally fired from the op-ed section for running Tom Cotton's piece of, of, of promoting fascism. Um, so I think the temperature has changed significantly where I, I, I think a cam- campaign to revoke Durante's Pulitzer Day would have a lot more success and sympathy. It's interesting. That was a, a, a time when the uh, New York Times stood up against cancel culture, <laughs> perhaps uh, a little different than their uh, stance more recently. But anyway, look, uh, Andrea, it's a fascinating movie, a really important story that more people need to know. The film is Mr. Jones, and people can see it on demand on Hulu and Amazon right now on their TV, right? Yes. Okay. And um, we want everyone to learn more about the Holodomor, which is the Ukrainian word for Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. And I hope that this film inspires them to read some of the books I mentioned, like Applebaum's Red Famine, Stalin's War in Ukraine. And eventually get around to Russian roulette. If they which I have to read. tell you, <laughs> I, was, I was on set in, in Kharkiv, yeah. which was the, yeah. for, Kharkiv was the former capital of Soviet Ukraine. Where we're, we're filming on a blistering cold day. And I was reading Russian roulette for the first time and reading about how uh, my sister was inspired by what our grandfather had been through in the 1930s to take on the Kremlin and Paul Manafort. So you were part of the, the journey, right? So well, you were there well now we, we have a movie called Mr. Jones about a great journalist. One day there'll be a movie called Mr. Isakoff. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All thanks right. so much, Andrea. Thanks, thanks Andrea. Both. Take care.